I, I, could you imagine my shock when I put out the call for people and Hero volunteered? <laughs> Who would have thought? He's got nothing better to do. It really just comes down to how long is it going to be before you see the message? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I figured if it was safe for him, safe for me. Yes. Uh, I, I, think, I, I think, think back to the bins as a safe space. No, I'm glad you should. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we have a therapy dog, and we're all wearing clothes, uh, safety pins. It's okay. <laughs> Back to the bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro, and the noise you hear behind me is my crazy new puppy. But I am joined today not by my usual co-hosts, who are off on assignment. (laughs) But we have our semi-regular, whenever the chips are down, he can come in and take a seat guest. And I almost almost hate to call you a guest, because you're here so often. (laughs) Chris Tyler. Hey. I hate that he's here that often, too. <laughs> I'm sure other people do, Is that too. not what you said? Is that what you said, Paul? It's, it's this subtext. But, uh, and it, you know, there was a time when Professor Allen was asking to be on the show and kind of dropping hints, and now he seems to almost have a semi-regular status himself. And welcome aboard again, Professor Allen. Glad to be here, gentlemen. Glad to Always have you. a pleasure. Thank you guys for, for picking me up while the other guys are off on assignments. That's what we do. Pick up the trash. <laughs> uh, sometimes bail comes through. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> We're here for when it doesn't. Well, you know, we say they're on assignment. That's, that leaves a whole plethora of things open that they could be doing. <laughs> Together or apart. <laughs> Whoa. Hey, keep your mind out of the gutter, pal. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, have you guys done any comic store shop hopping lately? Uh, I did go to uh, a chain that's in my neck of the woods, Newbury Comics, which really doesn't sell much in the way of comics. Uh, we have one of them here now. Oh, really? We're branching yes. out. That's great. Um, and it's as far as comic stores go, it sucks. Yeah, it's terrible. But if you're looking for <laughs> other pop culture-related material, uh, it's good. Because I was given yeah, a gift card probably... and... I'm How they name it, it comics is beyond me because they have uh, well originally uh, basically they... one corner of the store that's new comics and trades. Yep, and everything else is uh, CDs, right? Re- uh, you know, vinyl records, T-shirts, pop uh, vinyl figures, but yes. very very little in the way of comics. Well, and they no did package. they did start as a comic book store, but um, maybe they were one of the smart retailers that realized the money's not really in the uh, the floppies. So, yeah, I get uh, that, but just don't call yourself a comic store. No, no, they shouldn't. But you know, well, when now you've give... got branding. But yeah. now they've got branding. Yeah. When you're given a gift card, you want to spend it. And I've been looking everywhere for the four Golden Girls pops, and I can't find them. So I was hoping to get all four of those lovely, lovely Golden Girls to put on my my stand, but no, they didn't have them. Did you get any of them? I did. Well, see, the thing is, I could have probably piece them all together separately i'm not buying them unless i have all four of them because it's going to be really sad if i only have two of them or one of them and not the other ones 
So I just bought Bill and Ted instead. I had a situation like that with, uh, I have the, uh, the Beatles Yellow Submarine figures. And for the longest time, I couldn't find Ringo. So I had three Beatles, and that was it. Oh, well. And then eventually I found Ringo, so my, my collection is complete. But it took a long time. There was probably about two or three years that I had three Beatles. That's a shame. You got that collector stress. Oh, it, the stress was, was enormous. <laughs> How about you, Alan? Any any recent ventures out? Yeah, well, we, Emily and I have talked a little bit about this on Shortbox Showcase. Uh, together, she and I have taken the plunge, and we have a we have a pull list now. Ah, for the first time ever. So we are buying new books regularly, mostly rebirth stuff, and uh, the store that we do that at does have six or seven regular quarter bins Ooh. that are out there all the time. So usually, you know, I empty out the box every couple of weeks, four or five books, and I try to supplement it with a couple of, of quarter bins. It's it's what we call, uh, you want to amortize your costs. Oh, yes. It lowers the average cost of the books. <laughs> so I have a, a clearer conscience that way. That is a nice economics lesson for everybody right there. <laughs> but yeah, I, and... and... Frankly, I have a tough time justifying paying full full price on new books, and yep. I, I really very very rarely do that nowadays. Uh, more often than not, I'll wait. It, it doesn't take too long for them to show up in the one dollar bins if I really want right. them. Exactly. You know, the, the twenty five cent bins, not so much. But the dollar bins, you know, it's not too hard to find them in there. Yep. But I haven't, you know, with the holidays and everything, I haven't really done any shop hopping lately. I, I have, and I've talked about it on the show, I have had a resurgence of my uh, collector's desire to get more of the Marvel Bronze Age stuff. Right, nice. And, and I've picked up, you know, and, and I'm not necessarily looking for the high-end things, because most of the high-end stuff, I, you know, well, not most of it. I, I have a lot of, high, of the higher-end Bronze Age stuff. You know, I have the X-Men run pretty much. Uh, I'm looking for more like filling in the holes in series like Power Man, Hero for Hire, um, Amazing Adventures, Creatures on the Loose, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And those are things that I generally can find for the $1 to $2 range. Right. You don't generally find them in quarter bins, but you know you do have to search around a little bit for it. There was a, a, a retailer at New York Comic Con that had you know, a huge selection of stuff. And they were two dollars each. And had I anticipated it, I would have brought a little bit more cash for them. <laughs> but they're, they're in Virginia, so I can't uh, I, I can't go and 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 make a periodic deposit there. Unfortunately, well, it's only like a fourteen hour drive, right? Yeah. Well, I'm hoping maybe you know next year's New York Comic Con they'll be back again. There you go. So I guess that's it for recent comic collecting news. Uh, so we have three books. Now, normally we go Marvel, DC, Indie. Uh, what, what we have is Alan's got the Marvel, I have the DC, and Chris has the Indie. So I think, just in case we only get two in, we're going to go Marvel, Indie, DC. So, Alan, you are our Marvel guy right now. So you want to take the stage? We got it. This is The Incredible Hulk 144. Cover dated October 1971, and most importantly, still only 15 cents. This is the monster 
and the Madman, written by Roy Thomas and Gary Friedrich, with art by Dick Ayers and John Severin. The Hulk is thought dead, destroyed, blasted in the atoms by artillery fire high over Manhattan. Ben Ross doesn't want to believe it, but her dad, Thunderbolt Ross, tells Doc Samson that Betty has to get it out of her system. After all, she was in love with Bruce Banner, the man within the monster. But who they saw blown to bits was merely a robot Hulk, because the real Bruce Banner is now a guest of Doctor Doom. I mean, a reluctant guest at first, that's true, but now he's seen the light and is glad to be working for the beloved Latverian leader. Sure, there may have been a subliminal inducer involved at first, but what matters now is that he's a loyal slice, a, a servant, a employee, <laughs> employee, intern, of, <laughs> intern. That well, that's even better. They're unpaid. Intern of Doctor Doom. He's glad to have been put to work designing weapons for him. When Doom brings his love Valeria to meet Banner and gloat over how useful he'll be, she just doesn't get it. Somehow, this loving action fails to warm Valeria's heart when she learns that Doom is using Banner to recreate the Gamma Bomb so he can expand the greatness of Latverian territory by subjugating, a, by engaging in a merger and acquisition of a neighboring nation. She's, like, horrified. Why does she bait him beyond the point of madness? It is for her that he's done it all. For her! I mean, dames. Am I right, guys? Yes. Can't live with them. You, you finish the thought. <laughs> can't kill them. <laughs> can't, can't, can't expose them to a gamma, gamma bomb. In her misguided anger, she questions whether it's wise to construct a gamma bomb, which is what created the Hulk. Uh-oh. Because at the mere mention of the Hulk's name, Banner panics and transforms into the creature. Doom tries to talk him down, reminding him that they're all friends here. But the man brute has gone berserk, as anyone could clearly see. Luckily, Doom had foreseen such a possibility. He foresees all possibilities and knocks out the beast with a powerful gas, causing him to revert back to Bruce Banner. And although the bomb that he's developing is not technically, like, complete, in a strict legal sense, in a manner of speaking. Doom orders his minions, asks his minions, to send the Hulk out with it strapped to his back to attack his enemies. In planning in his mind that enemies are nearby, the Hulk is sent out with the Gamma Bomb, and for her own good, let's be honest, Doom explains to Valeria's pretty little head that the enemies are in fact preparing to attack, which may not be strictly... Uh, what's the word? True. True. <laughs> but to be fair, they would have invaded at some point, though it's really just a matter of timing and perspective, okay? However, much to Doom's anger, the bomb goes off too soon and harms nobody, which, by the way, hardly ever happens to Doom. Anyway, <laughs> he then learns that Fury again sabotaged his plot sabotaged his plot using 
own subliminal inducer to change Banner back to normal. All these years, blah, 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 she hoped you would change, blah, 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 but these feelings I have for you, blah, 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 can never stamp out your ever-present heat, blah, blah, I suppose that's why I did what I did. I mean, dames, am I right, guys? <laughs> now, before Doom can have Valeria thrown and relocated for her own safety to the basement safe room, y yes, it's marked Dungeon on the blueprints, but come on. The castle is attacked by an incredibly furious Hulk. And Doom and Hulk throw down when their battle puts Valeria at risk of injury. Doom selflessly uses his force field to protect her. However, Hulk is still looking for a fight and is about to crush Doom to death until Valeria, not wanting to see her one true love killed, begs for Hulk to spare him, and then just by going by the art on the next to last page, Hulk Doom pretty much just hug it out. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm getting from that. Valeria rushes to Doom's side, and Hulk makes some connection between this situation and his own failed relationship with Betty. And this makes Hulk feel sad. <laughs> Doom points out that no one walks away from a battle with Dr. Doom, but Hulk wants to be far away and all alone, and so he sort of bounces away into the distance, which technically speaking is not walking away, so Doom was correct. The end. I got my copy off comicsology.latveria. It may be slightly different. I know there's some translation issues sometimes, but no, no, the that's Hulk, what I got out of the story. The Hulk most certainly uh, gummy bear bounces away at the end of the issue. <laughs> and and don't they hug it out? Um, Clearly. Yes. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> what, well, one of them's hugging. The, 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 it's potentially, there's an attempt to squeeze life. Whatever. I don't think that's important. <laughs> I think I think Hulk is hugging, and Doom is a little uncomfortable with such an open show of affection. Well, he's, 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 a, he's a modest man. He doesn't want you know people to see this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh man, this one was fun. <laughs> this this was. I'm not saying this was great. I'm saying yeah, let, let, let's, it was entertaining in its own way. Let's let's try and talk about it a little, just a little bit without the spin. Uh, it's a strange thing they tried to do with Doom to give him Valeria the way they did in in this at this time. You know, she's just there on the sideline. I mean, it it just seemed like the Marvel trope at the time. Uh, you know that that you had, uh, which a uh, Kang had that I can't remember what her name was. Oh, I can't remember either. And and uh, you know it's Kingpin and Vanessa. Mm -hmm. Right. You know it just seemed like it was almost like that's you know one of the standard relationship kind of things they'd have that you'd have the, you know the the quotations villain, and uh, you know the the good-hearted woman that he would be in love with who would right. try and get him to temper his ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it works with Doom. Because first of all, as as you'll tell me, Alan, Doom is not a villain. Anti. 
hero at at worst. At worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I like the Valeria. You know, that works a little bit, but everyone knows his one true love is Sue Storm. So, I mean, to be <laughs> fair, Susan Storm Richards Von Doom has a nice ring to it. That's Come a, on, that's a that's a mouthful. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure you hyphenate that one. <laughs> Doom does not care for hyphenates. There is only Doom. This Von Doom has got you know is two two things already. <laughs> but but you know, it was a it was a decent throwdown. The fight was okay at the end, but there was a little it was it was a little too much of the uh, the the emotion and the heartstrings. That was an a little odd, too heavily played. An odd thing to try to overlay into the break. It's, it's it's a very talky Hulk too, which, with the mm-hmm. with the kind of berserker Hulk, he shouldn't be talking this much. Well, not only, you know, does he talk a lot, but uh, where was it on here? Um, let's see if I can find. It. Yeah, on on page twenty seven, on the bottom middle panel. Bah! Hulk knows he has beaten you, and Hulk, Hulk has beaten you, and Hulk knows it. Thus. Hulk will fight no more. Yeah, I'm that's... sorry. The Hulk in this what? in this this incarnation yeah. of the Hulk does not use the word "thus." No. <laughs> no, he does not. Like that that just jumped out at me when I saw that word. I mean that that is a problem when you've got the throwdown between your lead character and an A-list adversary. You know, they do both have to live to fight another day. Yeah. I like, which they didn't really do too much until later, I like a situation where you'd actually have Doom win the Clash, but Hulk is left, you know, licking his wounds or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, where you, you showed your titular hero of the story isn't necessarily going to win every battle. Back then, they didn't really do that. Nowadays, they might. But, you know, a, a little bit of his by the numbers, and I started... You know, thinking, oh, you know, I started thinking Bronze Age, but this really is on the cusp. It's like right in between the Bronze Age and the Silver Age, and it's more of a Silver Agey story. Yeah. Yeah, I think in 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 terms of Marvel, it is a second generation. You know, it's not Stanley writing it. It's Roy Thomas, though. Roy, yeah, Roy, so is, Roy yeah, still had his hands close. in the Silver yeah. Age. Yeah. First and a half generation, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you know. The Bronze Age really got ushered in when you had that that real new generation, you know, with Jerry Conway and Steve Gerber and right. yeah. Steve Englehart and Marv Wolfman, you know, those guys. That's when the Bronze Age really took hold. And I'm and, and not sure that Roy quite got, as the hero said, Hulk seems a little bit too talky. Yeah. And I think, you know... Doom is a tough character to get that right sense of bravado and Shakespeare and self-referential and self-reverential quite right. And, you know, it was, it was close. It was close, but it wasn't quite there. Doom this is also, Doom, I'm sorry, go ahead, Chris. Doom does come close to the realization that almost every man really does need to come to it. I have spent my last sleepless night filled... Longing for you. From now on, I will seek to please only myself. See, that's <laughs> that's the key. 
if you do that, you don't have to worry about women. Am I right? <laughs> See, that's it's you know you're the, you're a monarch. You do what you got to do. <laughs> At that point, Valeria should have been out of the story, right? But no, his longing for her and his love for her cannot be tamed. <sighs> You know, I, I think he, he oversimplifies things to some extent as far as Doom's feelings. Doom is a much more complex character than what's portrayed here. Here, but, here he's portrayed as kind of conniving. He's a conniving man in love. That's mm-hmm. that's the way he's presented. Yeah, and I think he's and, more. I think he's more complex than that. And I I think they do make a l- little bit of of the mistake of having Doom's thoughts be pretty evil. <laughs> You know, it's it's like he's purposely deceptive, and that's not really Doom. I mean, Doom no. should you really you should think he's doing the right thing. Yes, yeah. I agree. Doom, uh, Doom. It it the the context is twisted and, and all of that, but he shouldn't be in the back of his mind thinking, "Okay, now here's where I'm evil." What to to simplify it somewhat? What Doom does that can be termed as villainy is not necessarily motivated by evil so much as arrogance. Yeah. Right. Right. Re- reading this, I f- almost felt like the doom that I would have thought of in regards to a relationship with a woman. I got con from the the original series episode. You know, stay or go, but stay because you want to stay with me. Not you know, like he's not gonna fight around talking to a woman unless she actually wants to be there. And his raw magnetism should be enough to keep her there. And clearly, this is this is way too wishy-washy a doom for laying it out like that. Uh, and I guess today we could term some of this as problematic, whatever. <laughs> well, the only problem well, is that the I, bomb I went think, off too I, soon. I do like the idea of, and, and, and it 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 is unique about Marvel with the shared universe and, and all of that. I like Doom going up against Hulk. Yeah, I like that you know? too. I mean, just, it's, you know, it's a, there's some logic to it. You can see how it would be a good battle, but, you know, in the DC universe, you would really have to come up with some crazy way for the parasite to battle the Flash or something like that, you know, to do that, that villain hero crossover. Yeah. Yeah, they've done it somewhat over the years, but not mm-hmm. as effectively as Marvel and not as consistently as Marvel. Mm-hmm. And it just... uh, I think this is, you know, I've complained in the past a lot about decompressed storytelling. I think this story is a little bit of a victim of compressed storytelling. Mm-hmm. Because this, I could see where this issue would actually make a much better five-issue run. You know, you have Doom capturing him, you have Doom brainwashing him, you have Doom putting his his plans into effect, you have the the plans failing, and then you have the final throwdown between them. To me, that's five issues you can go with right there. Yeah, easily. Now, what 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 do you guys think of Hulk's size? Way like too how, small. How big should he be in general? He's way too small in this. Yeah. He's the yeah, they're about the same size. Yeah, t- height-wise, they're close. And he, I mean, he's built like a linebacker, but he's still not not big enough. I mean, uh, should the Hulk really look any less than eight feet tall? 
which I mean, sometimes dude, it depends on who draws him because sometimes they draw him actually short and stocky. Yeah, I think it's wrong when they do, but they do draw him that way sometimes. Well, I mean, he's stocky in this, but he's still. I, when I think of the Hulk, I still think of he's going to be at least a couple heads higher than even Thor or Captain America. You know, the guys who are the standard Marvel six heads high. But well, I don't think Thor should be six feet tall either. I think Thor should be six five, six six at a minimum. Well, yeah, I mean, and the and the Hulk should even be taller than him. Then I mean, that's he's he's a monster. <laughs> he should be I mean, taller and, than everybody. And in, in in those last final pages where they're um, hugging, um, <laughs> they are about the same size. And there's a you know, he, he, and he can't really tell if you know, if Doom is dragging his legs down maybe in one panel or he's just. Hulk is barely lifting him up, making Doom sort of a little bit taller, but he's lifting him up, so they they are about the same size, which is a little unusual, especially early on. They're showing this uh, sort of flashback of him fighting Iron Man, and he is about twice as big as Iron Man, it looks like it, or, or substantially bigger than Iron Man. Yeah, well, in that shot, Iron Man is actually closer to the reader. And he's mm-hmm. still smaller than the Hulk, who's further away. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, he, in that shot, he's shown to be, you know, a giant of a man. Especially look on, on page two. The, the, right, where, where he's holding him up over his head. Yeah, that's yeah, what I Iron think Man is what tiny. Think <laughs> that's, that, that Hulk is easy nine feet tall, easily. Yeah. As drawn there. But then when I mean, got... it is tough to do scale to have different sized characters all the time. It, yeah, I oh, imagine sure it that is, would be an artistic challenge, but it's a lot easier to just sit here and critique. <laughs> That's right. Well, one of the, one I, of the I, main we... components of that character is that he is a Hulk. Big, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of in the name. And he is wide, and I mean, his legs are huge. His chest, I mean, he's you know, he's physically large. He just isn't as tall, maybe as. I'd like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's also not as quite as muscular. He's just large. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. in that in the yeah. scene in the, in again on page twenty seven when he's hugging Doom, uh, <laughs> in the, the the middle row the third panel, he actually looks like he's you know a little pudgy. Mm, right. And and sadly, it looks like he's wearing low rise purple jeans. <laughs> There are some shots of his face where he looks kind of like a sad Jack Palance. Well, now, this this is an interesting art combo on this, too. It must have been, because I'm pretty sure Herb Trimpey was regularly drawing it by this time. But this is Dick Ayers and John Severin. And they are generally, to my experience, artists that you'd see on uh, Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos or Rawhide Kid or Kid Colts, you know, the Western books, the war books, that kind of thing. Uh, I don't think you saw too much of certainly John Severin on superhero books, and I've always enjoyed John Severin's work, and I and and I've also enjoyed Marie Severin's work, whose style was very similar to I believe it's her brother. Uh, but it's 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 a little strange to see, it. and she she drew the Hulk several times, so I enjoyed her Hulk. I actually like her Hulk more than this one. Uh, but I think this is Dick Ayers probably drawing it and John Severin inking it. So his style wouldn't come through quite as much. 
Although you do see it in the line work. It's, it's got kind of that look that he had, um, especially on some of the faces. But I, it's, it's, I, I have a mixed feelings about it because I like the overall look of the book. But when I look at individual panels, I have more to cr- criticize than I have to praise. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you guys have similar feeling. They do the, uh, the fun thing of uh, always kind of drawing uh, Doom's uh, mouth grill in whatever expression it needs to be for the panel. Yeah, too. and he, he's not Spider-Man, though. You, you shouldn't go that far with it. I I think they go a little too far. It's it's a little over the top, uh, but I that, yeah, it's a little over the top. But it now it is pretty funny. <laughs> so. I I enjoy seeing it. You can get a lot you of do, mileage you, out of it. You do get sad. You 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 do get the frowny face doom. Yeah. Angry angry doom. Well, there's nothing quite as frowny faced as the shot of the Hulk on the last page. Yes, oh, I know. That is. That's that's one of the most sad sack looking pictures I've ever seen. Because <laughs> he feels sad because Doom and Valeria make him think of Betty and Leonard. Uh, <laughs> you can almost hear the sad man, the lonely man music playing exactly. as, he, as, he, as he's pounding away at the end. Yeah. It's. It, I do like the fact that Doom will not admit defeat. Period. End of story. Even though he, he's, you know, and, and he's got an excuse for taking a, a, a beating because he let himself be diverted to protect Valeria. So it's, it wasn't that he truly got defeated in combat. But he did lose this battle and he doesn't care. He's like, I'm never giving in. And he then could when, give himself an excuse if he needed one. Yes. <laughs> if he wanted to give himself one. But then, then as, as the Hulk is bounding away, he, he either turns into the little boy in Shane or uh, come back, come or, the, back. or the, the Black Knight from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> Running away, eh? We'll call it a draw. Uh... I, you know, to, to put a cap on it for me, uh, I really enjoyed reading this. As much as I can critique things, the things that I'm making fun of on it or pointing out mostly made me smile. So I, I have no problem with this issue whatsoever. There, there's, there's definitely negatives to it, but it was fun to read. Yeah, I had a good time reading it too. And for as much wordage as there was in there, it was still a, a pretty quick read. Mm-hmm. You guys have anything else on this? No, it's the, it was fun. I love, uh, I love rampaging Hulk. Especially rampaging Hulk, it's just like whatever I want, I'm out. Bye. <laughs> now I'm sad. Yeah. I, I like the fact that uh, just this they did this once in a while, not too often, but uh, apparently the transformation changes Bruce Banner's blue pants to purple, and when he changes back to Bruce Banner, they turn turn back to blue again. I'm completely okay with that because comics. Unstable yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that being the scientific reason for it. Has something to do with the gamma, whatever. My gamma and, pants. Uh, but it but it allows him to have his <laughs> his conventional purple pants without having Bruce Banner walk around in purple pants all the time. So I'm okay with that. But but I do find that you know it, they were very inconsistent on it. They didn't generally, you know, he just always wore purple for the most part. And why why he would do that I don't know. Because it looked good in print. Yeah. 
It looked good for the Hulk. It didn't necessarily look good for Bruce Banner. Eh. You know? It takes a real man to wear purple. It does. Does it that? <laughs> you want to rate this one, Alan? Yeah, I thought on the cover, I'd go, uh, I'd go A minus. It's not bad. The perspective isn't bad. Despite these guys sort of twisted it around and fighting each other, nothing jumps out. Hulk's hands like a, a little big, but eh, you know. The only weird is that it says the monster and the madman, but both of those obviously describe the Hulk. So, mm. the, like, there's no description of Doom. Like, it could be the monster and his magnificence, <laughs> or the madman the and, and the monarch. I mean, something like that. Uh, so that's what keeps it from being a straight A cover, which is the obvious starting point for any cover with Doctor Doom on it. So uh, the inside art, it was fine. Uh, C-ish, varied panel layout, especially at the beginning, and that's a plus. But I, it's a little too much emotion on Doom's mask at times. Again, it's not, it's not Spidey's mask. You should you should dial it back maybe just a. It's not supposed to emote quite that much, but a lot of the art is uh, is very solid, as we said. The story, eh, C plus. It was a good battle in at the end, and the stuff with Valeria wasn't bad. But again, Doom's attitude, the language wasn't quite captured, quite right for my taste. But as we've all said, it was pretty much a blast to read. So I'm giving it a B overall. All right, uh, I guess I'll go next. Um, this is the uh, this is what you call a a straight up average book. This is uh, early seventies Marvel. Uh, the cover is I like the design of the cover. Um, the actual art itself could be a little bit better. I give the artwork on the cover a uh, a C. I think it's just pretty much average. The interior art pretty much the same thing. Uh, it's inconsistent at times some panels are great some are not great uh again very average c on the interior and uh in terms of the story i probably enjoyed the story uh more than the artwork itself uh so i'm i'm okay with giving it a b minus uh for the story because it was fun to read and uh kind of breezed right by uh so overall i guess you end up with a c uh, overall when you average out all of those things so okay. a fairly solid average 70s Marvel book. Mm-hmm. All right. So cover-wise, I like the layout of it. I like the image that it's giving. Uh, when I On Comics Book Database, they had it credited to Herb Trimpey, but it looks to me like it's inked by probably John Severin. Um, I like the color scheme. I, I, I feel like it pops a little bit. I'm not quite at the A- minus that you're at, Alan, but I'm also not at the C that you're at, Chris. Uh, I'm going to say a solid B-plus from me. The interior art, yeah, there's, there's a little too much inconsistency to it. Um, but it tells the story fairly well. It carries along. I think it's paced okay. Uh, the story itself is paced almost a little too quickly. As I said, I could have seen this going over five issues. But for the story they had to tell... I think that they did a good job of laying it out here. Um, some of the 
dimensions are a little poor, uh, the proportions. So I'm going to say a B minus on the artwork. And I'm going to go up the same grade, a B minus on the story. You know, I, I think, again, it feels a little rushed. I think it probably should have been done over several issues at least. And some of the motivations are a little just by the book. All that said, I do think the book is more than the sum of its parts because I really enjoyed reading it. So so even with, with a B plus, a B minus, and a B minus, I'm going to average it out to a B plus because I really just enjoyed reading it. And that's it for Hulk 144. Uh, we might as well go on to our indie now, which is an interesting choice. Yes, and it's an interesting choice because this was a book that was sent to me by our other uh, guest host tonight. Um, Professor Allen sent me the uh, Ace Comics Return of the Skyman number one, which is uh, cover dated in 1986. It's not on Mike's Amazing World, so this is the best information I have to go by. Um, the writers were Gardner Fox and Mort Todd. The pencilers, Steve Ditko and Bailey Mart. Inker, Rick Altergott. And uh, it is in black and white, so there is no colorer. The letterer is Wayne Truman. Uh, editors, Ron France and Vincent Vin Sullivan. The cover artist was Bailey Mart, uh, and Bailey Mart on the cover does an homage to the original uh, Skyman comic from 1941 by Ogden Whitney. Uh, it's pretty much a direct translation with some added background, and the cover is um, sort of a yellowish beigeish overall with the feature character of Skyman uh, zapping a clearly um, yellow menace type character uh, with a sword while there's uh, some dead guy with a box of jewels behind them uh, which has absolutely nothing to do with the interior story um, so we'll get that right out of the way the cover price was $1.75 which back in 86 that's a pretty hefty price even for an indie comic um I focused on just reading the main story in this. There is some uh, other back matter and history regarding the Skyman character, uh, which if you are able to pick up this issue or find a scan of it, it is interesting. But I am going to focus on the narrative itself. So um, Skyman is a, uh, a classic 40s character, and uh, we have a splash page that opens it up that... Uh, barely has anything to do with the rest of the story, with Skyman uh, sort of protecting a young girl. Rather, voluptuous young girl. Um, which, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll skip past that. Uh, we open with uh, Skyman, who is Alan Turner, who is an Olympic-level athlete. Weren't they all Olympic-level athletes in the Golden Age? Uh, a aviation expert and a scientist. And he's received a call from his uncle's cabin, uh, the uncle that raised him after his parents' death. And he is with his uh, beloved, Fawn Carroll. And uh, she's. He, uh, Alan is uh, deciding that he needs to go see what's going on after this mysterious phone call from his uncle's house. And he once again dons the garb of Skyman. And he takes off in his advanced aeroplane, The Wing. And jetting off into danger, 
after we get a little bit of backstory on Skyman, he arrives at his uncle's uh, cliffside cabin to find his uncle being attacked by a Nazi villain named Shrek, who, as he is drawn in this comic, is like the Frankenstein's monster version of J. Jonah Jameson. Um, <laughs> he's got the Hitler stash, he's basically got the buzz cut, and he's got some interesting scarification on his face. As uh, Skyman battles Shrek, he lays him out, frees his uncle, and his uncle uh, lets him know that the villain Shrek is looking to create some sort of time control device with uh, a statismatic ray that uh, Skyman uses. And I guess that basically knocks you out, freezes time. I'm not well-versed on the character, so bear with me. Uh, falling to one of the oldest blunders in comic book history, Skyman is uh, thrown uh, a pot at his head by Shrek after he wakes up. He gets knocked out. And with our hero laid out and uh, Skyman's uncle uh, helpless to do anything, the villain Shrek has a device. That's all it's called is his device. He's trying to interface it with the statismatic ray so that he can then control time. While these two things are intermingling, time around Shrek is going crazy, and Skyman jumps into the area of effect of this time device. They have a brief scuffle, and uh, Shrek is accidentally shot in the ensuing scuffle, and he falls through the uh, event horizon of the time dilation that's going on, and he instantly crumbles away into skeletal uh, dust and remains. Unfortunately, with this happening, Skyman is stuck in the uh, area of effect there, and we get some uh, subjective time floatiness uh, going on from his perspective. Eventually, he is awoken to realize that he's come to uh, waking up in the year 1987. Uh, I forgot to mention that the story takes place in about 1947, originally. Apologize for that. So it's not like this was some ancient Nazi guy that was going around. It was a, a pretty recent Nazi guy going around. Uh, when Skyman comes to, his uncle is there to greet him, and he lets him know that it has been 40 years since the issue with the, uh, the time dilation going on. And the time that Skyman has awoken into, uh, the world has been bombed by terrorists... Uh, called the a terrorist called the Iron Ghost, and um, Uncle his uh, Skyman's uncle is now very aged, close to death, and his uncle lets him know uh, I can send you back in time, but not to the 40s. I can only send you a couple weeks back, uh, so that you may avert this disaster that the Iron Ghost has caused over the course of uh, all the world. And uh, before we get any further into the Iron Ghost story. Uh, we see news footage of some Iron Ghost soldiers harassing the young woman who's on the splash page. And Skyman, uh, doing the hero bit, dons his costume and some new levitating boots that his uncle has made for him in the intervening 40 years. And uh, he stops the Iron Ghost soldiers, rescues the girl. Before the Iron Ghost soldiers are about to take out Skyman, his plane, the Wing, arrives just in time with uh, Skyman's uncle, uh, valiantly deciding to sacrifice himself as he's near death and he puts on a little belt uh, that's going to allow him to uh, fry the Iron Ghost soldiers on his way down 
His Peter, uh, Peter, the uncle, jumps out of the wing, fries the soldiers, and uh, sacrifices his life doing so. And as that happens, Skyman decides that it's now time for him to actually stop the threat of the Iron Ghost and go back in time and avert this worldwide catastrophe. And that is the main story. Um, this was a hoot. Um, it's very much inspired by the 1940s-style pulp stuff that you would get, but clearly there was a an edict to bring Skyman into the current day, and what better way to do that than with time dilation? <laughs> so, uh, definitely trying to reintroduce a, a character that was probably public domain by this point uh, into the modern day. Uh, a character that I have no familiarity with, but I enjoyed reading the story. It's that kind of two-fisted, uh, you know, spy smasher, phantom, that era of uh, pulp character. And, um, yeah, that's about it. Um, I'll let other people uh, talk a little bit before we go on. Well, the first thing I'll hit on is that I guess it was unsuccessful because there was not an issue two. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I don't think so. That's, that's kind of sad, actually, because I thought this... I don't know if I would use the word a hoot, uh, but I like this. I, I thought it had that Golden Age feel, hero feel with a little bit of kind of a modern edginess to it. Yeah. Uh, and the Steve Ditko art kind of works perfectly for that feel. Yes. And And the fact that it's in black and white, I think, is superior which I don't normally feel. More often than not, I prefer color. And I, I always hear people talk about black and white, and they, they rave about it. But a lot of artists, I think, you know, put together the book with the full intention of it being colored. Uh, so sometimes when it's black and white, it feels kind of empty. This one, I, you know, I think when it's put together intentionally to be in black and white, then that's when you really see it, you know... Uh, with, you know, the artist is doing a little bit more shading and stuff. Although Steve Ditko has never been heavy on shading, he's he's always been you know much more uh, yeah, a minimalist. Of, a lot of just line work, yeah. But just the same, I, I feel like even even some of the cross hatching in the back, I think, you know, wouldn't be done that way if it was going to be colored. Um, but I, I think it sets the right mood. Uh, and like I said, it's got that little edgy feeling to it. So overall, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was just you know kind of fun to read, uh, and I, and I would have liked for there to be a second issue of this. I'd like to see where this is going to go. Yeah, the uh, the character has popped up in other places. He was in Project Superpowers, and um, there's a new version of Sky. I mean, it's uh, within the last ten years. I didn't delve too much into uh, researching it because I'm sure it's not quite what this would be, and. Um, I don't know if there's any easy way to read the original Columbia Comics version of Skyman, um, but I, I would be interested in kind of tracking it down as well. I'm, I would think so. I'm trying to remember Luke. One time when he was on, he he uh, got us to some website that highlighted Golden Age books that were in the public domain. Yeah, if you search for it, you can find it. I was I, that's where I tried to find a scan of this for you guys today, but uh, unfortunately, they did not have this issue, so I had to look elsewhere. But it was yeah, there are a few issues. I'm looking at uh, digitalcomicmuseum.com. Uh, that they've might got, uh, that might be Sky, real. They've got real. Skyman one through four. It looks like I'm not pulling any of them up, but Skyman one through four. Yeah, looks like the same guy. All right. From 
I guess it's Columbia Comics. Yeah, Columbia Comics. Back in the back in the forties, yeah. So yeah, it's a public domain. And then again, that's like, why I kind of feel like Ditko's artwork does well with this because it, it mm-hmm. just gives it that golden age feel. Yeah, it's and it, boy it, is that one guy, uh, J. Jonah Jameson. Yep. <laughs> oh, this this one. I mean, the, re, looking through this, I mean, there's classic Ditko faces in here. None of the characters are quite as ugly as some of his best ugly characters from uh, the early Doctor Strange and Spider Man stuff. But it's clearly Ditko drawer. This like there's no mistaking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I would put Frank and Jameson up against those guys, as well as uh, as well as the uncle when he's you know whatever Ancient. he is eighty some odd years eighty some odd years old. He's looking pretty ugly there. Yeah, that's those are. That, I guess that's a pretty good example. Um, yeah, but overall, um, but I liked so him. But I liked you know, but when he was younger, you know, sort of almost he had a little devil look to him with the goatee and the. Long, skinny mustache and the dark yeah, hair. I, I thought thin he might face. turn out to I mean, be the villain. Cool. Yeah. Early on. <laughs> yeah. I thought it might Certainly. turn out he was working with Frank and Jameson or something, and it was all just a plot. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I thought this was fun. I I, I need to give props that I sent this on to uh, to Chris, but that was part of the comic book Circle of Life because I got that book from uh, one of our listeners on relatively geeky Greg Arujo uh, sent that to me as part of a part of a care package uh, last summer sometime so and there Just, is a Clarence uh, Price sticker on it that says 25 cents I am not bam. removing the sticker this is an uh, this is an official <laughs> from Professor Quarterbin himself 25 cent cost to me zero which makes it an even better value even better <laughs> uh, yeah I thought this was I, I I I actually liked the whole – I thought it was a very nicely packaged comic, as you said. There it was is. A, a, there's about a five- or six-page text piece yep. about the very sad life of the creator, yeah. uh, Ogden Whitney, or the, the co-creator, the, the original artist. And you know, he ended up an alcoholic, and they point out in, this, in the article that that's not an uncommon fate for many Golden Age – comic book artists it was just it was sad yeah that's just, i mean sort of this that this reporter's attempt to track down what happened to this artist you do hear that about some golden age artists and how they uh you know, how they hit hard times I, i'm thinking uh I, and I, if i'm speaking out of school i apologize but i think that was the story with bill everett as well that sounds familiar it is kind of sad. These guys have given us so much pleasure. Yeah, this is well worth tracking down if you get a quarter. Or if you can find it online. It's, it's fun. Yeah, that, I, I thought it was fun. I thought it was a fun read. I kind of like the guy's character. I mean, the guy's costume. I I do, too. It's that It's that real old school, real pulp 40s adventure hero kind of superhero costume and it's he's not jacked the way uh, they usually draw captain america he's kind of lean you know he looks like he looks like an olympic level you know like a distance runner he's not right not super beefy but he's tall 
and uh, I mean, and the costume it's... is just that great retro, almost futuristic. But at the time, it wasn't retro futuristic. It was just that was a costume that was designed in the forties, right? So he'd be right alongside you know the Phantom and Smash Smasher and Flash Gordon and all those guys. Yeah, like the sort of the the cape and the the, the cowl piece. Yeah, is cool looking. I like the basically sort of a, a the main part of the bodysuit is white, you know, with the red up top, sort of purple bluish. Yeah, uh, boots and the blue cape. I mean, it's classic colors. Red, white, but and blue. It, it looks, but it looks different. It it, it it's it's not copycat. No, not directly really. of, of of anything. It, but it's you know it's like you said it's it's in that that of pulp piece, era. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was kind of hoping for a little yellow menace action in it after seeing the cover, but I'll take Nazis. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> well, you, you know, you also got to factor in the fact that this is Steve Ditko, and he generally did not draw the overly beefy or overly muscular characters. Yeah. That is one of the big criticisms, which I have mixed feelings about because I go both ways on it, but uh, the criticisms of when he drew the Hulk in uh, Tales to Astonish. You know that that he wasn't matched up for that type of story because he doesn't really draw, you know, the the menacing big guy. He's more into the street level or the uh, you know the the far out Doctor Strange type thing. Yeah. But perfectly. But, it, but it certainly fits this story. Yeah. So uh, we might as well rate this one now. Oh, what do you say? Favorite. All right. Um, the cover, I actually really like the cover. Um, background detail is a little lacking, and because it is an homage to an original, I'm going to have to deduct some points for that. Uh, but as a redo of a classic Golden Age cover, uh, it holds up pretty well. Um, it's not quite a solid B, uh, just because, um, like I said, detail is a little bit lacking, and it is an homage. So B-, minus. I think it's a, a pretty good representation of the feeling of what you're going to get inside. Um, in Interior art, uh, I love Ditko. I love how weird his stuff is. This is not Ditko at his prime. Um, you know, it's about 20 years past his prime. Uh, that being said, it is still a very, very good artwork. Uh, this is a solid B uh, in my eyes. A couple of the faces are a little wonky, but it's Ditko. Um, but panel layout's good. You can follow everything. Uh, the black and white art definitely works for a story like this. And in terms of the story, uh, it's nothing groundbreaking. Um, it's not going to, you know, clearly it didn't do well enough to carry on. Uh, but as a one-off from a character that perhaps have, could have faded into obscurity, uh, it definitely works in terms of making me interested about the character. Uh, so for that, I have to give that a, a, a B as well. Um so, I mean, overall, this is a, a pretty solid B book overall, uh, especially for, um, you know, with, especially with the extra material in it. Um, it, is, it is a nice package. It's worth reading however you can find it. So, uh, B. Okay. Um, I feel like you got half a cover. It's essentially what it is. Yeah. From but the, it has more bottom. detail than the original it's based on. The original was just the, two, the three figures in a white background. Mm. But from the bottom until un, up until kind of the top of Skyman's head, you have some pretty good detail and well rendered. 
from that point up, which is probably a little better than a third of the cover, all you have is the the trade dress. And, you know, it, there could have been more there. Uh, I, I, I don't take away points for this, for not showing something that happened in the story for two reasons. First of all, I just get a kick out of the cover, the uh, politically incorrect adversary that he's fighting. Uh, it, and it just makes it feel golden agey because of that. And the other golden age aspect is I don't think it was that uncommon in the golden age for them to have a cover like this and then have it have nothing to do with what was in the story. Every issue I'm thinking, of action I'm thinking, comics. I'm thinking, of the, I'm thinking of World's <laughs> Finest comics for the first however many issues where they would show Superman and Batman on the cover. Meanwhile, they Near didn't the even meet each other meets. until issue 70-something. Yeah. So... I'm not taking any points away from it for that, which yeah, normally I, I, I would. I think they said they were always just looking for ends of the looking issue for what? cover in those days, which, okay. Looking for what? They were just looking for, like, a sense of what oh. you would find inside. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't even know if you're getting that. <laughs> but, but just the same, I just like the cover. So I'm, I'm going to say a B-plus on the cover. I, I Overall, I thought it was good. Probably could be an A cover if they had put a little bit more attention to the top half yeah some clouds maybe put the wing in the background something else mm-hmm. yeah the interior art i think is among the best steve among the best late in his career steve ditko stuff i've seen you know steve ditko in the 60s was awesome steve ditko in the 80s my take on him is has always been that whoever inks his work has been kind of afraid to add any detail or to to put any depth to it that wasn't already there. Uh, I'm not seeing that as much from Rick Rick Altercott, who inked this. I, I'm not familiar with him, but he seems to have done a, a pretty good job of inking it, which is something I didn't see that much in his later work. Uh, I do think that the black and white works very well. I like his character models. I like the way he draws the different people. Uh, and, and you do get some sort of far out scenes with the uh, you know the futuristic you know with the bomb having gone off, off so you have a post apocalyptic world. Um, I'm gonna say this is as good as you get from Ditko later in his career, and I'm gonna say uh, solid. I'm gonna say I'm gonna give it a B plus. Uh, the story, as I said, I kind of had a golden age feel to me, but with just a more modern edginess to it and it made me want to read more so i'm going to say a b plus on that too and i'm just gonna give the book overall another book i'm giving a b plus nice yeah i I agree with the cover you know the parts of this that i like that see classic golden A's adventure stuff like the exotic locale the buried treasure all of that i like that the skyman costume is you know evocative of that era but it's different and I'll make the controversial statement that a superhero uniform does not need trunks. Sometimes a belt is enough. The only maybe problem I have with the cover is that he's using like a ray gun in a hand-to-hand. Yeah, well, that's the Stazanata Razaray or whatever the hell it is. (laughs) He's using this in a hand-to-hand fight, though. That that seems like a distance weapon. I I know it's what he has, but... 
Yeah, I, I'm just saying, I don't know that you'd use that ray gun in close combat. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, well, well, Alan, so when, there's, the when there's a large Asian stereotype coming after you, you will use <laughs> you, the Stasimata ray. ray <laughs> so that's a B. Solid. I'm with you guys. B plus on the inside art. It's got the Ditko dynamism. So variety of faces, variety of body types, variety of looks. And you know I'm 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 a sucker for Ditko when it's good and this is good it's it's it's, it's it does have that energy to it and uh, and and Frank and Jameson it's hard to beat that <laughs> uh, the story yeah, B minus maybe you know it's better than average I like the origin well enough there wasn't a lot totally different or revolutionary about it I did like the high stakes though that he said that post apocalyptic and if we can just go back a few months or a few weeks in time, whatever it was. We can fix it all. I mean, that is a great setup for a series. You you could see that being a pilot, you know, to a to a TV show nowadays. Yeah. Uh, so I, I like that overall. Again, it's close to a B B plus. I'm in a good mood. It's early in the semester. I'll go B plus. <laughs> I'll go B plus. Don't 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 tell my students that. Uh, again, the Steve Ditko helps obviously with that, but also, as you guys said, that the text pieces. There are a couple of text pieces in there. Uh, there's a couple-page reprint of the original origin in the back. So overall, it's just a nice, it's a nice issue. Would so, you agree with me, Alan, that this would be a hell of a gift to get from somebody? I t- you know, <laughs> if someone, if someone loved me enough to send me this. And then send then then that person send it on to someone else. That would be. <laughs> it's 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 the circle of comic book life. Oh yeah. So B plus overall. This was a surprisingly fun read. I agree. You just don't know what you're going to get with an indie from this era. Yeah. Or a black and white indie. It could be anything. All right. And it looks like we have time to do a third book. Yeah. Isn't that nice? So I'm doing Doom Patrol number 122, which is actually a reprint of Doom Patrol number 89. And if you compare the two covers, it's kind of interesting. And you can look at them on most databases. I'm I'm going back and forth between them on comicbookdatabase.com or comicbookdb.com. The original kind of has the image of the the animal vegetable mineral menace and he's a giant of a man and he's kind of made up this I guess a you know his one side of his torso and his head is human the other side of his torso and head is a dinosaur his left arm and legs are diamonds his right arm and leg are tree branches and he's lifting uh, robot man and uh, Trying to remember her name, even uh, Elastigirl. Elastigirl, in his respective arms, and Mega Man is kind of down at the bottom, being just kind of doing nothing, looking at them. I mean, it 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 doesn't look exactly like your Skype photo, Paul, but it's close. <laughs> I like that. It's close. You're you're clearly um, homaging this. I like that. So the, the the reprint has kind of a recreation of that. It's not exactly the same, but it's pretty close. But it's got the uh, 
it's it's slightly smaller to allow for the train dress, and then on the left side it has the little circles with each member of the Doom Patrol in there. And it says, three villains in one, the AVM Menace. And the reason I picked the reprint of number 122 is because that's the one that I have, and that's what I've had for years. So I, I kind of went with that. This came out in February of 1973. It had a $0.20 cent price tag. And the story is written by Arnold Drake, penciled by Giordano Bruno Primani. Say that three times fast. Uh, you're the Italian. You say it three times fast. <laughs> I'm Italian. We don't say anything fast. <laughs> We have a splash page which shows Robot Man basically try- going to engage the uh, animal, vegetable, mineral man uh, who's made of sulfur and the chief is telling him to be careful because any spark from his medical from his, excuse me, from his metal body could explode all of them. From there, the story cuts back to uh, Dr. Larson who's on a plane going to meet with the chief and the Doom Patrol. As he's sitting on the plane, the negative man comes bursting into the plane and then somehow, without causing explosive decompression, <laughs> pulls, pulls him out of the plane and carries him down where he hands him to Rita, the Elastigirl, who then enlarges to the point where she brings him up and hands him to Robot Man, who's using magnetic boots of some sort. Uh, apparently the building is made of metal. To, uh, to walk up to the to a restaurant in the building where the chief is waiting for him. And then all the Doom Patrol and uh, the doctor all have lunch together or dinner together. And uh, they discuss the fact that uh, he had had a falling out with the chief because he accused the chief of stealing an idea of his. But now, you know, he's convinced that that's not the case. And the chief says, well, given time, you would have come up with it yourself. Anyway, they go to see a demonstration by him now that they've all forgiven each other. And as he's showing how he can create life using a giant lightning synthesizer bombarding a vat full of amino acid, he seemingly falls into the vat and then turns into a giant paramecium, Greek Jove, which then starts coming after them. And the chief says don't destroy it because it's what remains of a great man and they need to restore him to his human form. Eventually, they put a block of ice around him to, uh, around it, to slow its movements, and then they and they use locks to do that, which is liquid oxygen. But I keep thinking smoked salmon. Oh yeah. <laughs> Eventually, he breaks free, turns into the uh, sulfur creature, which is what we saw on the splash page, and Rita picks him up to bring him to the headquarters where they can take care of him, but then he converts into a tree which kind of attaches itself to her, but then she shrinks down to escape, and then it turns into a bird and flies away. So they're they're under the impression that, you know, he's fallen into this thing and he has no control over what's going on, but then he starts menacing the city as a brontosaurus, and when attacked with hoses, of all things. He turns into a giant sponge to absorb the water and kind of throw it back at the fireman. Robot Man goes after him and he turns into, I guess, a lead 
creature. Yes. And eventually turns into a giant dandelion, which is just kind of interesting. Then he turns into a bat and other things. He's just converting and converting and converting. But eventually the chief goes to get his, uh, his weapon, which conveniently is the weapon that Dr. Larson thought he had stolen the idea from him for. Mm. And as, as Dr. Larson turn, turns into a giant tiger, Chief shoots his ray at him, which prevents any changes in living cells, which I guess the, theoretically would prevent people from aging, and that was the reason for the, for the uh, invention. But what it does is it holds him in the form of a tiger, where they dip him in some sort of, I guess, dip, and it converts him back to his human form. And at that point, the chief says that he needs mental care, not imprisonment, and if he could be cured, that genius of his can do enormous good. The end. Yeah. Now this is another, obviously, Silver Age story. And I have some nostalgic feelings for this one because I bought it, you know, when the reprint came out in 1973. And as I said, the original story was in 1960... whatever. 1964. So it's, it's you know, smack dab in, in the, the early years of the Silver Age. And it's, it definitely has that feeling because the science is, uh, ooh, let's just say questionable. Oh, yeah. The motivations of the character are, oh, let's say, questionable. <laughs> the reactions of the characters are uh, questionable. questionable. Mm. <laughs> so it's got a lot It's got a lot that you can criticize and, and put down in it. But to me, once again, which is almost like the theme of this episode, I thought it was fun. And I still think it's fun. And I enjoyed reading this one, and I enjoyed rereading it to do it on the show tonight. I'm yeah, curious remember... what two people who may not have those nostalgic feelings think. Now, actually, I don't remember reading this one in particular, but I've been a fan of the Doom Patrol since the mid-70s, late-70s. I must have read them maybe in reprint books or digests or something. But I also had their three-issue run in Showcase, which was maybe 77, 78, something like that. That was the new Doom Patrol. Yes, yes. And I probably read those three issues, you know, a hundred times. <laughs> and so the Doom Patrol's always been one of those characters or groups that I've loved since those days, you know, when every comic character you read was a new character to you. Mm-hmm. And you thought they were all on evil, even planes. So for me, that's Adam Stranger, the Challengers of the Unknown, the Metal Men, the Doom Patrol. They all sort of fit into that category. Yeah, I would, I would put them all on the same level of, <laughs> of, of of comics influence. Let's put it that way. That's a nice but, but I but, but when I was reading them, I don't know, they, they had a comic book dedicated to them. They had to be important. Right? Everybody's <laughs> on the same level. So to me, they're equally in, as you know, uh, headliners as uh, other characters are. So it, it gets me nostalgic in that sense you know, for liking – uh, the team of the uh, at least again that 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 second reboot of the '70s. So I, I I do have a a soft spot for the old old school Doom Patrol. So you know when this came out, the reprint that is, to me they were on a level playing field with the X Men mm, because there, there were yeah. 
conceptually there's the obvious similarities, but they also were both in reprints at that time. That's true. Mm-hmm. So neither one was was actively putting out new books, but that didn't bother me at all because they were all new to me anyway. But they both had this older feeling about the books they were coming out with because they were books that had been written years earlier. And they, they both kind of had a place for me. Mm-hmm. And had DC decided to revive the Doom Patrol the way that Marvel revived the X-Men, they could have easily been the, the, the team that I grabbed a hold of eventually the way I did the X-Men. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh it's such a such a 60s idea and it's what a odd group of characters to put together. I I I love the idea of the Doom Patrol. It's not something where I've I haven't read enough. I think this is the second or third issue of Doom Patrol that when I've been on here that we've covered. Somebody must have some nostalgia for them. Um I think I think you were on in the episode when I did the first ever appearance in the Doom Patrol. Was it the first ever? <laughs> Yes. Okay. I'm pretty sure you were on that one. Yeah, I believe so. Um, yeah, it's a. Uh, I'm trying to think of the first time that I even remember hearing about them. I and it must have been reading some article about, oh, you like the X Men? Well, you should look at the Doom Patrol because that was at the same time. Um, it's a. Uh, I know it's had several relaunches. I just. I want to get into it. It is one of those series that I want to read more of, um, especially with the nice little nods at the uh, the. Uh, Teen Titans animated show did a you know about ten years ago with directly having the characters in the show um, and showing for where Beast Boy came from originally. I know that's sort of the second or third wave of Doom Patrol, but uh, it's just such a weird group. I mean, and and the the relationship to the X Men or the comparisons to the X Men are kind of undeniable, especially with the Chief, who's what in a wheelchair. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> Oh, but he has a lot of hair. That makes him totally different. Yeah, oh yeah, totally, hair, totally different. So oh, really, yeah. like, no comparison. But uh, it is such a it is such a neat idea that it's um, it is one of those such a '60s idea. Um, the heroes are so totally disparate in their abilities and their appearances that uh, how can you not kind of glom onto that and say like this is just an interesting idea? Uh, so it's definitely something I need to to look more into. Um, cause I, I love the design of negative man. Um, I just think that's a great idea. It's Pat did Pat, uh, dead man. Uh, it, you know, probably predates both of them. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah. And, and come on, Elastigirl. Come on. <laughs> no, but of, uh, of those teams and characters that I mentioned, those are the, Silver Agey characters of Adam Strange and Challengers of the Unknown and the Metal Men have never really been able to make the move into the modern age. But the Doom Patrol keeps getting revisited. And, you know, they've got a new series out currently that's supposedly pretty good. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're different from some of those other Silver Age concepts in that they... Well, maybe it's that they're weird enough, but generic enough almost that you know, that they can survive in the modern world, where some of those other great characters from that era just aren't able to make that leap. 
that there's something about them that that works. Yeah, I agree. There is just, I think there are haven't been many writers who've gotten a handle on them to make them succeed. But conceptually, there's something about that's enticing and makes you want makes you want to check it out at least. Now, one crazy thing, just the way that this particular issue was laid out, was right after the bottom of one page, bottom of page six of the story, is when they get the idea to freeze the guy. So they've got the the locks, the liquid oxygen, freezing the air, the moisture around it, and closing it in a block of ice. Mm -hmm. The very next page is a comic strip, you know, style ad for easy bake oven Mm. and just for like two seconds i thought is that how they thought him out (laughs) oh no wait sorry that wait okay that's an ad okay i got it i got like a 20 watt light bulb in there come on i don't think that's gonna do it (laughs) i'm just saying it just flowed so perfectly i'm just scrolling through it's okay interesting oh wait wait hold on now what what did you think of the artwork in here well, you know, Bruno Primiani is sort of the classic, you know, Doom Patrol artist from that era. I thought it was good. Yeah, I, I think it's it, like you know, I think the word classic is appropriate. It, to me, it, it's superior Silver Age art. We're talking 1964. When you compare this to artwork of that era, I think this is superior to most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, most of the house, house styles back then were much rougher than this. Yeah, his his normal human faces look like normal human faces. They're not overly stylized. Robot Man is obviously, but sure. even Negative Man, they still he still draws him with a normal human face under the bandages, <laughs> which makes no sense. But it's one of those things that yeah. just so works for a comic book. But just the yeah, the looks on on Rita's face when the she uh, turning into the tree the mm-hmm. the ivy and his yeah. and his uh, taking taking over her and the the look of concern and fear and then she shrinks and as we said when you have characters of differing sizes sometimes the perspective can look wonky but it really doesn't here there's a matter of fact a great I think panel on that on that page where you're looking down above Rita. And so you've got the team is really, really small. Yeah. You know, you've got the perspective of, I mean, they're further away in the shot, uh, but then also, you know, she is, she is so much larger anyway. So you get, you know, these really teeny tiny looking chief and, and negative man and robot man staring up at her. So I think there's just a lot of sort of, technical artistic skill on display and as much as i said i don't like when dr doom's mask emotes too much at the same time as you said a hero i have no problem with negative man's bandages showing his eyes and his nose (laughs) and his face and his lips and his eyebrows i'm 100 percent on board for that which is surprising because robot man remains his face remains pretty static, um, mm-hmm, right. which, and it would have been easy to to pull the same trick with him. But um, doesn't occasionally, just by the angle that it's drawn at, it looks like there's more emotion 
uh, being given to it, but his face doesn't really move that much. <laughs> And the other thing, you know, just that jumps out at me is just the concept of the animal, vegetable, mineral, mineral, which I find to be so silver age. Oh yeah. And yeah. but but I mean they're they're they are trying to live into the the world's most bizarre heroes. Mm-hmm. You know, tagline. So they're throwing in bizarre situations, bizarre villains, and they're just going for it. Yeah. And 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 I'm I'm along for the ride, hook, line, and sinker. Mm-hmm. Yes. I had no problem with the strangeness of that. In fact, I reveled in the strangeness of it. So I guess it's time to rate this. And this one's mine. So now the cover for me. And again, I'm I'm going to rate the cover of 122, not 89, was. Technically, I brought 122 to the dance, even though they're both the same story. Uh, I don't know why, but I like this cover much more with it done this way, where less, where, where space is taken up with the circles, with the characters and all, instead of just having this picture be taking the whole cover. For whatever reason, I like it more. Maybe it's because it's the first one I was exposed to, or maybe it's just because it just feels better with it with the actual heroes being highlighted like that but i see it as kind of a very classic cover i don't think it's iconic but it's it just evokes so many feelings for me that i'm going to say a b the interior art as i said when you look at the art of the era i think this is superior 1964 art uh i think it does a really good job of the storytelling i think the Facial expressions are really good, so I'm going to say a B plus on the interior art, and the story is just totally silly, Silver Age fun. I'm going to say a B minus on it because it does get a little dopey at points. And overall, I'm going to give the book a B. Yeah, for me, I, I like the cover as well. I'm going to go straight Bs, I think, probably on 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 everything. One of the things I liked about the cover now it's it's a reprint. So it's possible a reader would know what the AVM menace is. But that's all it says on the cover. Three villains of the AVM menace. It doesn't say animal, vegetable, mineral man. It just it and, and to me that there's something about that that makes it weird and mysterious. You know, right there off the bat, I was like, What is an AVM? Mm. Again, maybe you'd know if you knew that this was a reprint from a while back, perhaps. But it just that added to the mystery, again, which is sort of the Doom Patrol's basic shtick, being weird and mysterious. Uh, the art, as we said, Bruno Premieri, so the classic premier Doom Patrol artist of the era. Good perspective, interesting angles. Uh, there are a couple scenes inside science labs, and I think he's got that crazy Silver Age science stuff down pretty well as well so another B there and the story again very Frankenstein but it's a crazy premise it's a crazy book so that's okay I mean even for comic book science it's a little out there (laughs) but given who these characters are and the premise that you've set up that works for me and there's a super science resolution to the story and I know they didn't specifically said it. They said that these 
the chief and this other guy, they were just scientists. I like to think of them as science professors. And so for me, jealous professor motivation, let's just say I can see that. Call them colleagues, if you will. <laughs> so straight B's all the way down. A Again, a fun, fun read. Uh, I would uh, just go sl- a little little less than that. I would go straight B minuses all the way around on this. Um, so really not much else that I can add. It's just uh, it hit you guys a little bit more than it did for me. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a series that I, I do want to read more of because it is just so gosh darn weird. I think but, it's fair to say, Paul, Chris may be a little too young to appreciate this in the proper uh, measure. I would say for, for a pup as young as Chris is, he's very open-minded to this stuff. I am, I am not that young. You know what? It's all perspective, my friend. When I was your age, I didn't think it was that young either. I'm no longer your age. Wow. I, uh, 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 all right. I have no argument. I'm pushing 40. Come on. I... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we're... Why are we laughing, Paul? What, why are we laughing at that? Yeah, I know. I, I, I would rather be the one being laughed at in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. 50's pushing me. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, 50 is pushing me towards 60. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that's that's it for, the, for tonight. I want to thank you guys for coming to the dance again. I always appreciate it, and I always have a good time talking. Always. It's always, always a pleasure to, to talk to you two boys. Oh, Why yeah. don't we uh, just take a minute before we sign off, and each of you tell everybody where you can be found, as as if people don't already know. As if. Well, any, anybody, anybody on the Relatively Geeky Network or the Two True Freaks Network knows you guys. Yeah. But tell them anyway. Most of my work, such as it is, can be found at the Relatively E Podcast Network. That is uh, shows like the Quarterbin Podcast, as well as the short box case that I do with uh, with Emily, the star of the network. <laughs> I don't just say that. The download numbers bear that out. <laughs> and uh, she and I also have a, a side project called dorkness to light where we look at comics and tv and movies specifically looking at sort of religious and spiritual supernatural themes so those are the places you can find me or us and you should be downloading all of those shows because they are excellent (laughs) i I cannot argue with that uh what do you what are you you doing these days oh geez uh what are you uh, recording in a few minutes after we end this? I'm going to be doing a, uh, a special episode of uh, No Consoles for Old Men with uh, Scott McGregor because uh, we both bought the Mad Max game recently because it was on sale, and we've both um, been plunking several hours uh, into um, wandering the wasteland, uh, looking for water, driving cars, doing all that fun stuff. But uh, usually I am found... Uh, on the Two True Freaks Network, uh, on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, say that three times fast, uh, which I host with Chris Honeywell, Luke Jacanetti, and Jason Jacanetti. Uh, I'm on Weekly Heroics with Scott McGregor, uh, where we cover the TV shows that are based on uh, superhero properties on the uh, networks that are on right now. 
and uh, did a side project called Cast Protection, where I and Jonathan Kreitz and David Atterbury covered Stranger Things. That show is not dead. There is more coming out uh, on the horizon regarding the influences that are in the uh, Stranger Things universe. And uh, so that's what I've got going on right now. Also, all stuff worth downloading and listening right, to. I can't Good recommend stuff. that stuff highly enough. Thank you. Uh, I, I can't recommend that stuff either. <laughs> highly enough. Highly enough. Well, yeah, I mean, well, you, you guys are old, so whatever. <laughs> well, thank, thank you again for coming on, guys, and for reminding bringing you down the median game. age. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm used to recording with kids. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks. And we'll see you next week. Hey, everybody. What's up? Dr. Bill in the house.